So tonight I'm going to continue a bit more on the theme of desire. Uh, It seems like this theme is becoming somewhat predominant on this retreat, and sometimes we don't plan these things. It just turns out this way. So I want to expand out um, the, the theme because this is really one of the most confusing themes, I think, in Buddhism. Uh, there, are, there are some others, of course. Uh, nirvana, <laughs> no self. <laughs> um, but, desire, but desire is certainly one that needs a little bit more attention. And when I was thinking about this talk, I was thinking that this would be, this is a talk I wish I would have had early in my practice. Um, because I had so much confusion around this word and what it means and, and the effect of desire in my life and trying to sort it out and understand it. So I want to shed some light on how to um, think about this word desire and also understand it more thoroughly in our practice. Maybe how to identify it as well. Uh, and, and in not just its unwholesome manifestation, but what I want to bring out as well is this other manifestation which isn't talked about as much, but it's the wholesome manifestation of desire. And I want to talk about it uh, drawing on two words from the Pali uh, text, the Pali teachings, the, the words tanha and chanda. And sometimes when we go to the words, the Pali, the original Pali, that the Buddha, uh, the Buddha's discourses came to us in, um, we can start to, a lot of, uh, lot of us uh, who have been practicing for a while, and certainly people who are more scholarly, we love to start to uh, tweak some of these words, uh, like tanha, and to, to, to get a deeper understanding of what the Buddha was actually pointing to when he talked about these, these words. With tanha, the reason it's so important to begin to uh, unravel it and understand it a little bit more is because tanha is actually the word that is given for the cause of our suffering. It's the cause of our suffering. So when the Buddha gives the teachings, gave the teachings on the Four Noble Truths, which are, it's the, the Four Noble Truths are the, are the, it's the essential nut of the, of the Buddhist teachings, tanha pl- takes an essential place in, in those Four Noble Truths. And to remind you of these Four Noble Truths, the first Noble Truth is that there is suffering, and this needs to be understood. The second is there is a cause of suffering, and this needs to be relinquished. The cause of suffering, tanha. This needs to be relinquished. There, in the third noble truth, there is an end to this to suffering, and this needs to be realized. The fourth noble truth, the truth, there is a path to the end of suffering, and this needs to be followed, followed in order to realize the end of suffering. So tanha, I even like to say the Pali words. You know, they're kind of fun. They they roll off the the tongue a little differently than the English words. So tanha. The literal translation for tanha is thirst. The thirst, the, that hunger that comes through us, that, that uh, uh, craving for something. So it's also translated as craving, or sometimes as ambition, or restlessness that inner restlessness that arises when, we, when tanha is present. And, we, and the word that is often, tanha is often translated as is desire. But desire is actually quite a general word, and it's an English word that has a much broader meaning. So I think if we actually use the word desire to talk about the cause of suffering, we're going to miss something. I think it's better to talk about the cause of suffering as craving, or this thirst. The Buddha said in one of his uh, teachings from the Dhammapada, craving is the chief root of suffering. 
It is craving which gives rise to ever fresh rebirth and bound up with pleasure, now here, now there, finds ever fresh delight. Isn't that lovely? It's now here, now there, finds ever fresh delight. It points to that mind that is seeking for that pleasure, for that ever fresh delight. Where are we going to find it? Where is the mind going to land upon that delight? So that we will be fulfilled in some way, which is this illusion where we're going to find our happiness. Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna, who was a philosopher who lived in India 700 years after the time of the Buddha, said something that is a little closer to what Howie was talking about last night when he was talking about craving in a way, talking about the clinging on to the idea of self. Nagarjuna said, blocked by confusion, I survive by forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free to be no one. The freedom that comes. So we're not clinging on to some kind of identity, to some kind of self-image about who we take ourselves to be. This tanha is conditioned by feeling by a feeling, a sensation of a feeling. And the feeling can be pleasant or it can be unpleasant. Because if the feeling is pleasant, we want more. Hmm? Clinging, craving for more of the pleasant feeling. If it's a con- it can be conditioned by unpleasant feeling because we don't want the unpleasant feeling, so we're going to look for some kind of pleasant feeling so we can get rid of the unpleasant feeling. And so it keeps the tanha alive. And this wanting, this wanting that arises in this kind of desire, leads to seeking, a kind of seeking and searching, which panders to self-interest. What's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? What's in it for me? Thinking about me. And this thinking about me and seeking for more of what is going to make me feel good, narrows and limits our intentions and our energy for our own self-gain. It's like our, our impulses and our intentions and our choices and our actions are for me and what I'm going to get so that I feel better in myself. Which then uh, is how we and Mark have talked about, in, in, encourage this self-improvement improving, improving, whether it's self-improvement or home improvement, like Howie said, or any kind of improving the conditions in our life so that we feel better. The self-interest there. And this tanha is supported and nourished by an ignorance, a kind of a blindness, because when we are seeking in this way, we are disconnected from our deeper nature a nature that knows our interconnectedness with all things, that there is nothing other, there is nowhere to seek, there is nowhere to go, that it is all right here. When we go deep into the realization of the source of our being, the source of our heart, the source of our nature. This is from a 19th century philosopher, Vivekananda, who wrote about the monkey mind, which is a real manifestation of this tanha. When I read this, I thought, "Uh uh-huh, this is the tanha. He said, there was a monkey, restless by its own nature, as all monkeys are. As if that were not enough, someone made him drink freely of wine, so that monkey became still more restless. Then a scorpion stung him. When a creature is stung by a scorpion, he jumps about for a whole day. So the poor monkey found his condition worse than ever. To complete his misery, a demon entered into him. What language can describe the uncontrollable restlessness of that monkey? The human mind is like that monkey, incessantly active by its own nature. Then it becomes drunk with the wine of desire, thus increasing its turbulence. After desire takes possession comes the sting of the scorpion of jealousy, the jealousy of the success of others. 
And last of all, the demon of pride enters him, enters the mind, making it think itself all important how hard it is to control such a mind. Anybody can relate to this? <laughs> the tanha is the, is the restlessness, that inner restlessness that, that empowers that seeking, the wanting, the striving, the efforting for something else, mostly to get away from this restlessness. There's got to be something, you know, and so it puts us on this perpetual search. The craving, the craving, this is a, um, a subtle point in the teachings, the craving actually conditions the attachment. It's not the attachment. The attachment is actually the word for when we stick to the object. The craving arises in the mind, that movement of moving towards the something, but we haven't yet stuck to it, but then the sticking to it is the attachment. When we get obsessed or we have the thing or we want to hold on to the thing, which is an intensification of that craving. We can know this craving and this attachment very directly in our experience when we uh, increase the, the power of our mindfulness. And I had an experience when I uh, had the very good fortune to go to Nepal, uh, to Kathmandu, um, uh, some years ago, six or seven years ago, and received teachings from a, a, a very uh, highly uh, acclaimed master of the Dzogchen teachings, Tuku Ugen Rinpoche. Mark uh, was there as well, how he went another time to see this master. And while we were there, um, he was giving a teaching on tanha. And although I didn't know that he was going to necessarily begin this teaching, but he was saying, I, you know, I wanted, it was all translated. He speaks Tibetan, and then it was translated in English for us, a group of, a group of about ten, 10 of us. And so he held up. Uh, Tibetan masters, teachers, have beautiful implements all around them when they're sitting on the podium. So they pick up their implements for part of their teaching. And so on his podium was a beautiful uh, uh, china teacup tea and saucer, very delicate, very fine. And he picks it up in his hand. He holds it up to us. And even before he gave his teaching, my mind leaned <laughs> inward, and I went, wow. That is an amazing teacup, teacup and saucer. And I just started looking at it and looking at the china, really appreciating its beauty. But it wasn't just appreciation. It was like, oh, I should have finer china around <laughs> my house. Wonder where I could go and get really fine china. I wonder if it's very expensive. You know, and I could see, you know, before he even started giving teaching, my mind started moving into the tanha although at the time I didn't know it, and I didn't catch it. I didn't have the awareness, I didn't actually have the understanding. And so he said, when your mind moves towards this teacup and saucer, <laughs> <laughs> and starts to find it quite attractive, and then kind of wants it, and figuring out how you can get it, and I was going, oops, <laughs> caught in the act. And it was so immediate that I saw the whole thing. I saw it happening. It was right there. The, the movement of the mind, the leaning forward, the toppling forward towards the, into the wanting of that object. Why? Because thinking that it, you know, it's going to make me happy in some way. And so he continued on with a beautiful, exquisite teaching about that movement and the, the, the attachment and, and that, that, that comes after the tanha. And then the, the obsessing and all that will go into trying to get that object because we think it's going to make such a difference in our lives. So the obsessing, when my, if my mind would have stayed with that and I couldn't have actually heard the rest of his teachings, that would have been the attachment. I would have been stuck to the object, and then it just uh, obscuration to be present with anything else that's happening. So this tanha, or this craving, arises in the mind, 
And it colors our thoughts and intentions, like putting colored glasses on our eyes. And it becomes the motivator for our actions and for our choices. It actually colors the mind so that it gives rise to these motivations, which then we follow through with in terms of our actions. And this isn't necessarily just something that happens for ourselves, and then we are the cause of the suffering. These uh, actions that we get involved with have widespread effects, as we know, when we look at the state of our culture and our world, which is a manifestation of our individual and collective tanha. I'd like to read something from uh, uh, Jacob Needleman. And I'm not actually sure who he is, but he's, uh, oh, yes, I do. He's an internationally known writer on philosophy and re religion. And he's being interviewed, and he says, um, the proliferation of desire has been the basis for our capitalistic, capitalistic economy. It is not the satisfaction of desire, but the creation of artificial desire. People do not need 99% of the products they are offered in the marketplace. If the so-called normal desires would be satisfied, then the economy would collapse. <laughs> the economy is based upon delusion and false desire. Who needs 20 kinds of orange juice in the supermarket? Because of all these desires, we have to work harder and longer hours to afford these desires, and then we have too little time to buy the products or, our ser or the services, let alone enjoy them. This, in turn, is a reflection of living in our heads and continually being busy with our possible future desires. Time seems, then, to pass faster and faster. We just don't have enough time to do what we think we need to do. We do not even have enough time to do what we really need to do. And then we're in time poverty. Just as we have, just as we've seen with money, with time we are also seeing the loss of values and the loss of a sense, loss of the sense of what a human being is all about. The loss of a sense of what a human being is all about. And the interviewer says, "This sounds like a sad situation at the beginning of the 21st century." And Jacob says, "It is a very severe crisis." And it cannot go on like this much longer. And we know that. Yeah, we know that. Look what we're doing. Look at the destruction that's happening on this planet because of tanha. Because of tanha. And the, the blindness that is a condition for the tanha to arise. If we were seeing clearly, if the mind was open, the mind was awake, the tanha would not be able to uh, proliferate into attachment. And, and clinging. So this is, the, this is the tanha that the Buddha is talking about when he's talking about the cause of suffering, the cause of our suffering. When we get involved in these desires that are for self, for me, and our, and our view is so narrow that we can't see, we can't see the wider implications we can't, we're not t in touch with the consequences and the impacts of our actions on the, on the planet and in, in our communities. And so as we go deeper into our being, we start to understand and sense and, and become sensitive to the impact of our actions, something starts to shift. Something starts to shift inside of us. Now there's another motivator for our actions. The good news is, not, is that not all of our actions are motivated by tanha. Mm -hmm. So sometimes as we talk about this sort of thing, it can become quite depressing because we think, oh my God, you know, I'm just completely a ball of egotistic activity. And there's no way out. You know, I'm completely stuck in this. But actually, one of my main intention for giving the talk tonight is to help us see that actually that's not all that's going on, to give you some, some good news about desire. So another motivator for our actions is what's called chanda, chanda. Or more accurately, it's dhamma chanda, dhamma chanda. And what this is translated as is desire for dharma, 
Dharma Chanda, Dharma Chanda. Um, or, and, and what Dharma Chanda means is desire for that which is right, desire for that which is good, desire for that which is true. And I think even as I begin to talk about it, you might feel a shift happening inside of yourself. Yeah, I know that. I know that, 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 that desire in myself, that desire for that, wants good things, that wants things that are true and right in this world and in myself. And this chanda isn't necessarily an energy that arises because of our imposed ideas of what's right and what's wrong and what we've learned over our life through our conditioned uh, past, but it's really one that arises from the goodness of our being. It arises from the goodness of our heart because we are good. Each one of us has an innate quality of our being that is good. And when I reflect on this, when I've been reflecting on this over the last uh, month or so, I thought, ah, that's why it seems like there's so many good people in the world. You know, people who haven't necessarily, you know, practiced Buddhist meditation or, you know, aren't deeply in spirituality, yet an amazing goodness comes through their being. It's because they are good, through and through. Not they, but we. That is who we truly are is this goodness of being. So this chanda, when we are connected, when this flow of our being is occurring, this is the chanda, the dharma chanda. It's coming through. And this is what colors, we might say. It colors our intentions and our actions and our choices for things. And then what arises out of there is quite different than what arises from the tanha. Because the chanda is a movement of mind and heart that is for the benefit of all beings. It's for the benefit of others. It's for the benefit of myself. It's for the benefit of society. It's for the benefit of nature. It's a very different movement of our being that all of us can uh, know and be in touch with and have been in touch with. Another word for this wholesome desire, this wholesome movement of our heart, is a kusala dharma or kusala dharma. And kusala is a Pali word that means karmically wholesome or profitable desires, which are morally good and skillful. And these kind of actions, this kind of energy that arises into action, is usually associated with greedlessness when the tanha is not there, the greedlessness or the hatelessness, when those kind of uh, self-oriented mind uh, states are not present, when they're they're softened, when they, they, they soften so much sometimes that they just disappear, they're absent, and a real um, goodness is expressed from our being. This is a genuine, it's a genuine desire to want to help, a genuine desire to want to benefit someone, ourselves, or someone else. It's it's much uh, deeper. It has kind of a righteous zeal to it, but not a self-righteous, you know, which is different. You know, it's not a self-righteous, I know what is right. But, but a sense of a deeper knowing of what is right for the world. You can feel into it as I'm talking. This chanda leads to effort and action. It leads us into effort and action. And effort because it takes effort to follow through with some of these uh, uh, intentions and motivations that arise in our mind. It's not necessarily that the path is just going to be easily open for us. Sometimes it takes effort to be able to uh, implement these kind of uh, uh, desires that move through the heart in this way. And, and chanda is nourished by 
intelligent reflection. Whereas tanha is nourished by ignorance, chanda is nourished by wisdom or intelligent reflection, where we, we are seeing things more clearly. Uh, we th- see things in a wide view. Chanda is really the movement of the heart. When the, we, you know, in some of these words are metaphorical, when we say the heart moves, but, but it, it touches something when we hear it. It's a movement of the heart, like loving kindness or compassion. When we, when we see, pain, when, we're, when there's pain, somebody's in pain, and our heart moves to want to help relieve that pain. Or, or somebody's happy, uh, and, and our heart moves to rejoice in their happiness. Um, or, or we feel we're with somebody who really makes us feel happy and our heart just opens in love. Mm-hmm. Or it's a movement of, of dana. We just had a dana talk. Uh, the generosity where we want to give from the depth of our heart because we know it will benefit. We know it will make a difference. Truthfulness, morality, all these, these wholesome qualities of the chanda, expression of chanda. This is such an imp- has been such an important understanding for me because uh, for a number of years I was very confused around the desire part because it was like I had to, you know, if I was really a good Buddhist, then I had to get rid of all desire. You know, even if I wanted to be free or I wanted to feel good or I wanted my partner to feel good or my child to be well, it was like, oh, but that's desire, that's desire. And that's, that, that's, <laughs> that's the, not the right interpretation. It's another way of not seeing really clearly. My, I, w- I had a teacher, of Howard mentioned him last, uh, last night, Punjiji, a wonderful teacher we were with in India a number of years ago. And Punjiji actually was the one who kind of broke that spell for me. Because he, because he kept saying, light your fire of desire your desire for freedom. That desire for freedom, that desire to want to be liberated, the desire for that passion that arises through the mind and the heart to be free, light that fire, ignite that fire. And it was like, oh, but that's desire, you know? <laughs> You're saying, no, that's, a, that, that's the desire that's going to bring an end to desire. Another, it's another way of talking about this chanda. It's the desire that's going to bring an end to desire. Because as we cultivate and we nourish that aspect of our heart, then the tanhas doesn't, it starts to loosen, to start to, it, it, it's seen through. It, can't ha- it doesn't have the same power. And then if we follow this desire that we feel in our heart for practice, for uh, truth, for understanding, this takes us deeper into our practice. Because ultimately, all our activities must contribute to the well-being and support realization in order to live a good and noble life. To live a good and noble life, really all that we do, needs to support this. What else is going to make the difference? What else is going to do it? As we deepen into practice, we learn that we are not so separate from others and from life in general. We begin to see that our own interests and the interests of others are very connected. They're not so different. And as we see this, it actually brings more urgency to want to be free and to realize ourselves on a more and more profound level of our being so that we will have the capacity to help. We will have the capacity to serve and to really make a difference in this world. And when we look around, we see how absolutely necessary that is. Or we don't know how much longer we're going to be on this planet. So, so as we open and as we sense deeper into our connection and the truth of our being, it ignites that fire. We want more. 
we want to go deeper, we understand more of our connection, of our unity, it all spirals around and is all co-dependent and interconnected. It all supports and works together. And this selfless desire to want to help, to want to benefit, grows out of love and compassion. The love and compassion that we experience in greater and greater depths of our being. And this selfless love in the Buddhist path, and the Buddhist lineage, is called the bodhisattva ideal, or the bodhisattva path. Or we might say, having the bodhisattva attitude, which is that I want all my actions to contribute to the welfare and the liberation of all beings. And some of us have even taken on that as a vow for the purpose of our life, a life purpose that all, I want all, may, may all of my actions, may all of my desires, may all of my intentions go towards the welfare and the liberation of all beings, so that all beings may be free of their pain and may be free of their suffering. It goes really deep to the bones and to the essence of our being. It touches something because we know it's true. Hamid Ali, who is now one of my teachers, who's the started the um, Ridwan Foundation, or the, it's called the Diamond Heart School, he says that whenever any human being loses his point, his or her point of view of separateness. The entire human race benefits. In this way, all the work we do is for the good of everyone, for the earth as a whole. Whenever any human being loses his point of view of separateness. So I often say that the work that we're doing here is the most radical social action. You know, because sometimes it can, what we do here, and certainly can't this work I call it work, because sometimes it feels like work. <laughs> but this uh, practice that we're doing here certainly can be perceived from the outside as quite self-indulgent pe from people who don't really understand. What, you know, you're taking three, five days, you know, all for yourself, you know? You're not thinking about your family, you're not thinking about the world, just for you. That's so selfish. Anybody ever said that to you, or have you any, ever had that sense? Yeah. But as we really understand what we're doing here, this is, this is radical. This is radical transformation for the world. And when we feel this love and this connection and this compassion, it manifests as a good feeling. It's not that you know, it's so selfless, there's no feeling. <laughs> it's not that we no longer, you know, we become kind of vegetables. Sometimes we can think that, you know, when we think about this concept of no self and whatever that means, you know. But no, it's a good feeling. It's like, it, it's, like it's, it's joyous. It's, um, it's it, it, there's an immense kind of a, a, a pleasure, sweetness, joy that arises in the being, that rises in the, in the consciousness. Uh, and, and of course then that ignites more sense of wanting and desire, but yeah, that's good. We want more of that. We want more of that kind of joy that arises out of the goodness of our being. Maybe you have even experienced this here, you know, the joy that can arise just by uh, maybe opening a door, you know, holding a door open for somebody, or making space for somebody to walk by, or, um, you know, just maybe one person said that somebody bowed to them on the path, and they just, like, their heart just, like, soared with all this joy, because they were, they made that connection in the silence. It felt so beautiful. It feels good, you know, it's a good feeling, a pleasant feeling. It's okay to have that pleasant feeling. How to make this teaching practical for us? I just want to give an example, of real, kind of a real basic example, from um, uh, Venerable Paiuta's Buddhist economics. Buddhist, all, Buddhism also has economics. <laughs> 
So he uses an example. He says, Mr. Smith is paid $500 a month, $500 a month to sweep the streets. If Mr. Smith's work is directed solely by Tanha, all he wants is his $500, not the cleanliness of the streets. In fact, he doesn't even want to sweep the streets, but it's a condition for the wage. But if Mr. Smith is motivated by chanda, then he applies himself to sweeping the streets irrespective of his monthly wage. Chanda is the desire to do his work well and feel gratified because he has done it well. So maybe for most of us, we're going to be motivated by tanha and chanda. You know, it's not going to be a necessarily a pure kind of expression because we're not really fully enlightened yet. You know, we're not, you know, we haven't manifested the bodhisattva ideal. But sometimes the sense of ourself is not very strong. And we can feel into that selfless nature in which our, the chanda can arise, and it does arise. And we're not doing our work just for ourselves. We're not involved with action just for ourselves, although it might be mixed. It could be both. So in a few minutes, I just want to take a moment to ask you to reflect on the movement of this in your life. But before I do that, I want to just clear up one area of possible confusion. Because when the chanda, chanda is directed towards yourself, you might think it's tanha because it's for myself. But it's not necessarily. I was talking to a couple of uh, groups about this in the last month, and it was interesting because in each group there was a there were uh, well, there was a nurse, in each independently there was a nurse, and while I was talking about this, each of these nurses had the same reaction, and they said, you know, in my experience, I don't really want to work that hard. What I'm doing is very difficult work, and I find it very, very overwhelming. And sometimes I just need to take time for myself. And when I do that, I feel really guilty, because there are so many beings that need help. So I need to get out there, and I need to keep working. But yet I'm so overwhelmed, I'm so burned out, and I'm so stressed. I need to take time for myself. This is a confusion, because the, cha- this, the, the desire to want to take time out for that nourishment and the replenishment of energy is the chanda. It's a movement of metta, of compassion for one's being, for one's predicament, so that there can be energy then to help others, to go back into the workplace, to, um, to be of support. So sometimes it's not very clear. We have to kind of feel into it and get a deeper sense of what this really means. So I'd just like you to take a moment now and then just reflect on, maybe think about where you spend most of your time. If you work, maybe with your work, or if you don't work, where you spend most of your time. And think of examples, just for a moment, of how tanha plays out for you. Tanha being the ambition, the self-interest, the thirst for building up yourself. Just getting a sense of it, because we might need a few hours to really think about all the examples. And now, think about the chanda. How does the chanda play out for you? Just a couple of examples, just getting a sense of it. Sometimes it's not really that easy to know 
And it's really useful to continue the reflection so we can begin to make a kind of discernment between these two energies because one is involved with self-interest and one is a softening, a a melting of that self-interest. And yet, to take it to another level, even the desire to do good acts and the fulfillment of these desires can be motivated by self-interest. So we need to do the best we can and take time to examine our motivations and really take this on as a practice. What are we motivated by? What is coloring those intentions, those motivations that move through our heart? Because we are going to make mistakes. And it may mean that we will find out after we do something that it wasn't actually as selfless as we thought it was. I want to read something from the Dalai Lama. And I think you all know who the Dalai Lama is. He admitted that he sometimes is not sure that his decisions, that the decisions he's making are the best ones, that sometimes he makes mistakes. He says, the only thing I can rely on is my sincere motivation. And the Dalai Lama's sincere motivation is to foster compassion and liberation as best as he can in each action. So even though he makes mistakes, all he can do is rely on that deeper motivation that he stays in contact with the best that he can. And that is really all that we're being asked to do, is to stay in touch with that motivation. In the Buddhist practice, we have a foundation practice uh, that we, we've talked about at the beginning of retreat, and we talk about the beginning of every retreat, the end of retreat, and on anyone who takes on this practice deeply takes on uh, the, um, the five precepts, the, 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 the five ethical guidelines, which really are a protection for our tanha, because we don't know how to act in a pure way. And so by taking on and working with the five guidelines of not killing, not stealing, not being engaged in sexual activity that causes uh, harm, uh, not using uh, wrong speech or speech that's hurtful or harmful or harsh, um, not indulging in intoxicants and uh, substances that, uh, that delude the mind so we can't see what we're doing, they're, they're our protection. You know, that, 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 that's what serves us to, to help us begin to shift these patterns of being so that we can act in the world in a more caring and compassionate way until our wisdom catches up, until the transformation starts to happen in our being where then we may not need to rely so much on those guidelines or those moral rules as they sometimes come across because there's a natural knowing from our heart, from our being. This is also from the Buddha. The thought manifests as the word. The thought being intentions or motivations. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habits harden into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. So we do practices of metta, and compassion, and generosity, and all to help turn the mind, like turn the mind away from these Uh, difficult and destructive habits of mind so that we can start to nourish and support the deeper manifestations of our true being. So we can come into congruence, so to speak, with who we really are, with what's already there. In the deeper stages of our practice, something starts to shift. Our actions seem to arise from a whole different location of our being altogether not from a sense of what's right and what's wrong, not from good and bad, 
but from a dynamism of our being, the dynamic expression of our being itself. This is from Hamid Ali again. He says, in the deeper stages, there is a spontaneous and natural flow of presence. This presence functions as the inspiring and motivating center of initiative, action, and creativity. The dynamism of being is intrinsically intelligent, which manifests as appropriate responsiveness. Isn't that beautiful? Appropriate responsiveness to the needs of whatever situation one finds oneself in. There's just a knowing how to be appropriate. If somebody's cold, you give them a coat. If somebody's hungry, you give them food. If somebody's sick, you give them medicine. If somebody is upset, you give them love and care. It's like, you don't have to think about it. (laughs) The dynamism of being knows how to respond. He says, when love is needed, the the dynamism of being manifests presence in the aspect of love which guides us to act in loving ways. When strength is needed, it it manifests presence in the quality of strength, guiding us to act with strength and vitality and so forth. It's like those, it's all there. It's all there for us to draw on. He says, this dynamic essence of one's nature is not an ambitious activity trying to actualize its ideals. Rather, it is a completely non-selfish, dynamic flow of essential nature unfolding naturally and authentically in congruence with nature, with all of nature. We know who we are. There's no separation. We respond because there's no difference between the other and myself. This is from um, Shantideva, who is an 8th century Buddhist philosopher. He says, even when I do things for the sake of others, no sense of amazement or conceit arises. It is just like feeding myself. I hope for nothing in return. Beautiful expression of that selfless nature. And now that we've talked about this difference between Tanha and Chanda, I'd like to read some words from Martin Luther King so you can hear what's coming through this man. This is something he, uh, part of a talk he gave at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlantic, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia, in uh, 1968. Every now and then I think about my own death and I think about my own funeral. I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. Tell them not to mention that I have 300 or 400 other awards. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. Say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. That I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind but I just want to leave a committed life behind. This is a song of realization. This is a song of somebody who knows what's right, (laughs) not from a place of imposed, conditioned ideas from the past, but a heart that is spontaneously, authentically, naturally expressing itself to the conditions at hand. This is what's possible for us, each one of us, 
Each one of us have this potential within our own being. When we start to understand what's operating, what's moving, what's manifesting within ourselves that blocks this realization, that blocks this knowing and contact with the essential qualities of our being that can be expressed in ways that will make a difference. And each one of us can find our own unique expression. It doesn't look alike. Again, it's not you know, when we start to feel and know the selfless nature that we become this kind of um, blob where we all kind of just dissolve into each other and there's no unique individuality left. It's like each, in this realization, the individual then can truly express itself and its purpose in its full manifestation. And so as we come deeper and deeper into the truth, we start to touch these aspects. And from this place, there is really no need for rules. There's no need for precepts. There's no need for religion even. The response is enough. We don't need anything for ourselves from the situation. Let's sit just for a few minutes together. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.